So we're uh, in the middle right now of a series of sermons where we're looking at one book of Scripture each week. This is our week for the book of Esther. The Bible has a story in it about some main characters named Esther, a young Jewish woman, and Mordecai, her adopted father. She was orphaned. And a bad guy named Haman. Great. The Bible has this story in it. But why? Why does the Bible have this story in it? Why do we need to hear it? And the answer is, well, one article I read this week put it this way. How to endure. How to endure. How to endure hardship and suffering and sorrow and grief. That is the hardest challenge every one of us will face. This is a New York Times uh, writer, Ross Douthat. If you know his name, read his work. He's writing about misery. How to endure misery is the most important question, the biggest challenge that we will ever face. To help us face that challenge. God gives us the book of Esther. That's why he tells this story. That's why we listen. Carrie's going to read for us. We'll pick up in the middle of the story. As Esther, who by this point is a queen, is sending a message through a messenger to her adopted father, Mordecai. Today's scripture reading... We will look at two selections, first from Esther 4, and then some select readings from Esther 8. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And then from chapter 8, Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, And if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamathatha, and Agathite devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall upon my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family. This is the word of the Lord.
One of the things that Ross Douthat's article about misery goes on to say, not only is endurance the hardest challenge we'll face, he goes on to say that, you know, in, in America we're good at educating people for success, but we're not good at educating people for suffering. We live in a world where suffering is a reality every person's life, every day, in some way, on some level, and sometimes in some of our lives at levels that are nearly unthinkable and unbearable. And so today, in town, because I love you, all week long, God has been educating me to know how to suffer better through the book of Esther. And now what I get to do is to share that with you so that all of us together get to be educated for suffering. Not because we're a gloom and doom church, but because we live in a real world and where God wants to step into that suffering and give us the kind of strength that would enable us to do something about it. That's what the book of Esther is about. God educating his people for suffering so that we can not only hang on and endure but step in and do something to redeem. That's what God is doing today. That's what he was doing in the past. We're going we're gonna to have this education sort of by looking at three, three snapshots in time. The first snapshot is set about the year, say, 375 B.C., a few centuries before the coming of Jesus. Around that time is when the book of Esther would have been written down. And the first people are reading this story for the first time. What's going on in their lives? Well, they're living in Persia, modern day Iran. They're living in this mighty empire. Many Jewish people have begun to return back to Jerusalem after the Babylonians a couple centuries earlier, took them off captive and hauled them away to Babylon, the Persian Empire, much more friendly, and says, yeah, we want you back in your land. We want you worshiping your God. We want you happy. So here, take our money and go back and rebuild your temple. But not all of God's people were in that return. And so some are still living in Persia. They're living in a place where all of life has, has no reference to their God. There is no temple. They're not in the land that God has promised them. There uh, aren't, you know, uh, radio stations playing Hebrew verses from the Bible and singing the most, uh, you know, the top ten list of psalms. Um, they're they're kind of living in this secular world where it seems like God is not only absent, but absent, absent in a frightening way. Now, I'm, I'm stealing this language from a scholar named Karen Jobes. She's one of the most for, uh, foremost uh, students of the book of Esther living today. And Karen Jobes says, you know, Esther, th- these people are living in a time and a place where God is frighteningly absent. Where at any moment, if the king of the empire decides to, they could all be returned to slavery. They could all be worse we see in the book of Esther 
annihilated, persecuted, killed. What's it like to live in a world where God seems frighteningly absent? And how do you endure when God seems to not be there at all? Well, God says, I want to answer that concern. And so through my spirit, I want to give you a story that shows you that I am always present, that I am present even in the details of your secular life, this life where I seem to not even be there. I am always there, always present. Now, the book of Esther delivers that message in an unusual way. It shows us God is always present by telling a story in which God is never mentioned. The word God occurs nowhere in the book of Esther. The name of God, Yahweh, is not quoted anywhere in the book of Esther. There are no direct quotations of any verses of the Old Testament anywhere in the book of Esther. There are no references to the temple. There's only one reference to the king, King Jeconiah, who was enslaved by the Babylonians. Now, as we go through the rest of this uh, time, we're going to see that there are plenty of connections to what God was doing uh, with his people throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But they're subtle. It's like, it's like the Holy Spirit gave us this book in order to say, I want to show you what it's like to live in a world where God seems to be absent, but he's always present. He's always there. And so you hear that in the words that Mordecai speaks. Uh, now, first of all, the name Mordecai is based on a Babylonian god named Marduk. Right, So this is the kind of culture that God's people are living in, where God seems to be frighteningly absent, where even godly Jewish men are named after Babylonian gods. And, and Mordecai says this to Esther, who knows, who knows, who knows but that you were raised up to this royal position For such a time as this. It's a very subtle way of saying. God is the one who put you here. God knew what he was doing. God knew what he was doing. When King Xerxes. Ahasuerus is what some translations will say. Because this is two ways of trying to. Turn a name into another alphabet. Right. The the Persian alphabet doesn't work well with Greek. So it becomes Xerxes in Greek, and it doesn't work well with Hebrew, so it becomes Ahasuerus in Hebrew, but it's neither of those. It's something Persian that none of us know, right? So we're going to call him Xerxes because that's easier for me, okay? So King Xerxes one day just says, you know what? Vashti wouldn't come out and parade in front of my drunk friends when I had them assembled for a council of war, and so I'm done with her, and so I need a new queen. So gather up all the young women in the empire and put them through a year of beauty treatments because, you know, we kind of have a harsh climate here that's rough on the skin. So spend a year softening up their skin and perfuming their robes. And I'll choose one to be my favorite mistress. All the others will just spend the rest of their life in the royal harem. And he chooses Esther. And Mordecai says, 
God knew what he was doing. God did this. He orchestrated all these details for such a time as this. God seems to be absent. He seems to not be showing up in your life. He seems to be somewhere else. It seems like God is over there in Jerusalem and here I am stuck in Persia. And he's over there with those people and he's not here with me. And Mordecai says, but who knows? It's a very subtle way of saying God's at work even when you don't think he's there. The book of Esther does this many, many times. In chapter 9, verse 1, um, it says this, On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. Oh, really? Who turned the tables? A few verses later, it says, But now their sorrow was turned to joy. Who, who turned their sorrow into joy? This is a common device used throughout the Bible to talk about God and what he's doing. Jesus uses it a lot. Jesus says things like, Blessed are those who mourn, for they, you can finish the sentence, right? For they will be comforted. Who will comfort them? God will. God will do the comforting. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Who will fill them? God will. Who turned the tables in Esther's day? Who put her in this place of royal authority for such a time as this? This is God's way of saying Esther is this 11 chapter long. I hope it's 11. Did I get that right? No, 10 chapter long. Esther is this 10 chapter long way of God just shouting over and over again let me show you what it looks like to live in a world where you think God just isn't there but he is always 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 at work you know what that means you're never alone you are never alone when you were an orphan girl thousands of miles from what you think is home And you're just caught up in the machinery of Persian politics and the whims of kings who have all the power and you have nothing. Even then, you are not alone. God is at work. He is near. He seems frighteningly absent sometimes, but he is always present. That's how we get educated for suffering. We learn to suffer well when we understand that even in the moments when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, He is right there. Even when we can't hear His name, He has not forgotten you. He will not abandon you. You may feel like every day you walk into a school where He's just not there You walk into a place of business where it's dog-eat-dog and God is just for Sundays and then there's the reality of Monday through Friday. Maybe God is there for half an hour in the morning when I read my Bible, but man, by 9 a.m., I am in this world where kings hold all the power and I'm just a cog in the machine. And Esther wants to say to you, my people in Persia were not alone. My people in Atlanta are not alone. You suffer well when you learn that God has 
He is with you. It is not an accident that you are where you are. It is not an accident that you live in this city and not some other. It is not an accident that you work where you do. It's not an accident that the person who works across the hall from you works there across the hall from you. It is not an accident that you were born into the family you were born into. God is at work. Now listen, sometimes you get born into a family that's hard. You'd rather be part of a different family. Yeah, I've been there. Heck, I'm the reason why there are four kids on this planet who sometimes wish they had been born into a different family. (laughs) And don't even get me started about the dog, right? The dog wishes she was owned by someone who had fewer anger issues. Okay? God says, you're not alone. It's not an accident. Even when I seem frighteningly absent, I am at work. I am present. You can't endure if you think you're alone. But if you know God is with you, you can suffer well. Suffering will still be hard. But you won't have to go through it alone. All right. Next time frame. Now we're not going to talk about the people who are reading about Esther 75 or 100 years later when this book was written down. We're going to talk about the days of Esther herself. We're going to talk about being in Esther's shoes. So we're around the year 483 B.C. Three years after Xerxes became king in Persia. And um, what's the challenge that Esther is facing? Esther is, is facing this, this um, temptation to just kind of pull back and keep her head down. Right? The world is broken. I'm caught up in this big machine. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to keep my head down. And that's why Mordecai has to speak to her. And, and he says, Esther, please... I know you're the queen now. I know that you are part of the king's household. But Esther, please understand that if you keep the fact that you are Jewish a secret, all of your people will be wiped out and one day it will be found out of you and you will be killed too. Remember what Mordecai says, Esther chapter 4. Verse 13, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. By this point in the story, Haman, we'll talk about him more later, has tricked the king into uh, believing that there's kind of this subversive group undermining the health of the empire. And wouldn't it be good, O king, if we could get rid of them? And the king says, why, sure. Let's do it. He doesn't know that Esther, his queen, belongs to this group. Right? And and this is not just a local decree. You know, let's get rid of all the Jewish people who live here in Susa, where the king's uh, spring palace is. This is an empire-wide decree. Let's go all the way to Jerusalem if we have to. Let's track them all down. Let's get rid of these people, Haman wants that to happen the king doesn't really understand he's been manipulated 
And Mordecai says, you know, Esther, I understand that if you say something, your life will be at risk. But, but for such a time as this, you've got to speak up. Our, our fate is in your hands. Now think about being a young woman in this situation. I think life has got to be challenging, right? You're in the royal harem, which means you can never get married. Esther says, it's been 30 days since the king called me into his presence. How would you like to be somebody's wife? And it's been 30 days since he said he wanted to see you. That sound like a healthy relationship? Happy marriage? Right? So Esther's not in a great spot. And she can't see any other men. The only men she has contact with are those who have been castrated, the eunuchs who care for the royal harem. But she has a pretty comfortable life. She lives in the royal palace. She eats the best of food. She dresses in the best of clothing. And you can understand why a young woman in that situation, young man for that matter, anybody would be tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm just going to hope this all works out and I'm not going to get involved. Is that the way to endure? Is that a way to deal with suffering? To say when the suffering comes, I'm just going to kind of turn my back and walk away? No, God wants to educate us for suffering by saying, guess what? Now is the time to step up. Step in. Do something. (laughs) You have an opportunity to display real courage. You have an opportunity to do what one writer calls shaking off the spell of simulated life. You live in a world where social media says there is no suffering because everybody's life is awesome. Great. Everybody's smiling. The food is beautiful. It's glistening. It's all been perfectly prepared. And that little speck on the edge of the plate got flicked off before the picture was posted. Right? Who knew food pictures would be such a big deal? And yet we live in this world of kind of simulated life. And at some moment, Mordecai is saying, Esther, real life is not like this. You don't get to sit on the sidelines in safety and hope everything works out okay because there's no suffering in the world. Maybe there doesn't seem like to be much suffering inside the palace, but the rest of us are about to die. Shake off the simulated life and step up and do something brave for a change. And at that moment, the whole story changes. Esther has just been described as kind of caught up in the machinery and suddenly... Something happened and Esther starts giving orders and she starts saying, you go to Mordecai and tell him this. And Mordecai, you command the people to gather and fast and pray for three days so that I will have courage to do what I must do. And if I perish, I will perish because I'm going to step into the king's presence. And if he decides to kill me, he can. What happened to Esther? What got into her that caused her to stick her neck out and take a a risk for the sake of other people? The only clue we have 
is what the scripture says that Mordecai said. Who knows? God is the one who brought you to this position for such a time as this. And that flipped the switch. And suddenly this young woman displays so much courage. In chapter 8, she takes her life in her own hands again. She goes back into the king's presence a second time, uninvited. What courage. Abraham Lincoln was not an especially religious man early in his life. But something happened. He was elected president. And past that point, after he was elected, he began to read the scriptures more carefully and more closely. He began showing up in worship every Sunday. He had never done this before. He began to take seriously what God might have to say about what a just and peaceful world looks like. What happened? For such a time as this. God, what are you doing in my life? Esther has that kind of moment. God, what are you doing through me? What are you going to do with this moment? Now, hang on a second. We're talking about Esther. She's a queen in the Bible. We're talking about Abraham Lincoln. He's a president. Who am I? I'm just a... Esther was just a Jewish orphan. One more woman in a vast harem. In a mighty empire. At the moment she did this, nobody knew she was anything. When Abraham Lincoln was elected, it was because all the other really powerful politicians, people were afraid they couldn't be elected. They had too much power in one part of the nation. Here's a guy who doesn't really have much power or influence anywhere. He's just a backwoods lawyer who can give a good speech. He was nobody. Nobody knew these people would be who we know them to be at the moment. How do we suffer well? By stepping into it, by engaging it, by doing something. All right, one last time frame. This one's going to take us back 600 years before Esther, the days of King Saul. The first king of Israel. What's that have to do with Esther? You remember Haman was described in chapter 8 as an Agagite, a descendant of Agag. That's unfortunate, right, to have that as a name. <laughs> and yet, we pick up with we pick up with Another thing here that makes it hard to endure. It's hard to suffer well when you think you're doomed because of somebody else's failure. So in the days of King Saul, Saul was commanded to to destroy a tribe of people called the Amalekites. And Saul refused to. He went to war with the Amalekites and he took their cattle and sheep for himself and kept it. And he spared the life of one man. He was supposed to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Why? Because when Israel was leaving Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them. And Deuteronomy chapter 25 says the Amalekites 
attacked the stragglers. Who would the stragglers have been? Put yourself in the shoes of hundreds of thousands of people walking through the desert. Who's in the back as we walk across the desert? Sick people, injured people, people with diarrhea, babies, nursing mothers, pregnant women. The Amalekites are the first to attack God's people after they leave Egypt. And the first place they attack is the most vulnerable, the weakest. And God says, I can't let the world think that that's okay. So Saul, you're my instrument of justice. And Saul spares the life of one man named Agag, the king. Saul the king fails. And now 600 years later, all of God's people are about to be killed because one king failed in one detail. It's going to be hard for us to endure if we live in a, in a world where we think if one powerful person fails, the rest of us are doomed. So one of the messages of Esther is, thank God that he raised up Esther and Mordecai so that they could correct the failure of King Saul so that they could carry out God's justice as you read the story and God's people are attacked King Xerxes says I decree you're allowed to defend yourselves when you're attacked and so they do and then they don't take any part of the plunder of their enemies why? Because they know they're correcting the failure of an earlier king. So Esther is shouting to us over and over and over again. You're not doomed because somebody else failed. In fact, God's going to raise up a king who will never fail. God's going to raise up a king who doesn't need Mordecai to get in his face and wake him up. God's going to raise up a king whose faithfulness will cover our failures. There's no king on the throne when the book of Esther ends. God's people need a king. Not a king like Saul. Not a king who will fail. Not a king who will pursue his own wisdom a king like Jesus Esther tells a story so that you and I can learn to suffer well we're not doomed God is not absent somebody else's failure doesn't mean we're paralyzed and we have to sit on the sidelines and hope everything works out okay because Jesus never failed, we get to be part of what God is doing to redeem the world. We can suffer well because we know suffering isn't the end of the story. And there is a God who redeems by coming to suffer with us and for us. One last story. As I'm studying Esther this week, I, and I know that this sermon has been too long. Can you listen to one more story? And I'm thinking about 
about how it feels when, when past leaders have failed in a way that makes you feel doomed. And I have to be honest and say the first thing that came to my mind is the failure of, of my spiritual forefathers in addressing slavery and racism. There are many other failures that could come to my mind, but they didn't. The one that came to my mind was this one. Maybe it's because I'm reading about Abraham Lincoln right now. Maybe it's for such a time as this. God is at work. But that's the failure that came to my mind of feeling like, man, are we just doomed as a church, as a denomination, as, as, as a culture to, to just carry on this legacy of racism forever and the consequences of slavery? And there's nothing we can do. And then I remembered my friend, George, George Robertson. George, he's a fantastic preacher and pastor. And if George wanted to just sort of coast and have big churches because lots of people want to hear what he has to say, he could. He could keep his head down. But what has George done? This Alabama boy has said, you know what? We need to push back against this legacy of racism in our denomination. George, until a few weeks ago, was pastoring First Presbyterian Church in Augusta. That's in the state of Georgia, right? Augusta. Sometimes we confuse Atlanta with Georgia, you know. It's like Augusta. First Presbyterian Church is the place where Presbyterians from the South gathered at the time of the Civil War to say, we will not be part of the same church as Northern people who oppose slavery. We will split. We will become our own church because we want to be a church where the races are kept safely distinct. Do you know what kind of courage it takes to be the pastor of that church and stand up and say at our General Assembly, why don't we establish a committee that could help us think about what it means to publicly confess our sin related to racism? It's hard to suffer well if you think we're just doomed to repeat the failures of the past. But when you hear God tell a story that says Saul's failure is not the end. I can raise up somebody else like a Persian queen to correct the failures of a miserable king. I will raise up a king who will set you free to do what you can where you are to help hurting, sorrowing, suffering people endure. George has been set free by that king. You're set free by that king. Anybody who wants to be redeemed by King Jesus can be part of what King Jesus is doing to redeem a suffering world. That's why God gave us the book of Esther. 
Let's pray for a moment. David's going to come lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, forgive our failings, our shortcomings. Give us courage. Thank you for raising up Esther, without whom there would have been no Jesus. If all of her people were wiped out in the days of Xerxes, there would be no Joseph, there would be no Mary, there would be no Jesus. You were at work through Esther to raise up your perfect king. Now, because of the strength you have given King Jesus, give us courage to suffer well and to be part of what you're doing to redeem the world. Strengthen us even now as we receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Amen.